and listen to the word of God. Revelation chapter 7. After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, that no wind might blow on the earth or sea or against any tree. Then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun with the seal of the living God, and he called with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm the earth and sea, saying, do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000, sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. 12,000 from the tribe of Judah were sealed. 12,000 from the tribe of Reuben. 12,000 from the tribe of Gad, 12,000 from the tribe of Asher, 12,000 from the tribe of Naphtali, 12,000 from the tribe of Manasseh, 12,000 from the tribe of Simeon, 12,000 from the tribe of Levi, 12,000 from the tribe of Issachar, 12,000 from the tribe of Zebulun, 12,000 from the tribe of Joseph, 12,000 from the tribe of Benjamin were sealed. After this, I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these clothed in white robes, and from where have they come? I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve Him day and night in His temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. And he will guide them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. So reads the word of God. Please be seated. We finished last Sunday emphasizing God's unlimited authority and power over this world. Every judgment that rolls out on this earth 
gets the go-ahead from his throne room. That could sound troubling to us. We acknowledged that last week. We acknowledge it again. That could sound troubling until we stop and think about whether God would truly be worthy of our worship if this statement weren't true, if it weren't true that every judgment that rolls out on the earth gets the go-ahead from his very presence. What sort of God would he be if he were put in response mode by any occurrence in this universe? What sort of God would he be? The very thing that makes God God is that all things are subject to his power. All things are responsive to his direction. All things are accountable to his authority. All things. He's God. I like the way one pastor put it. He said, no power on earth can prevent, hinder, or delay God's judgment. The natural and social forces of the world are at God's disposal. Famine and plague do His bidding. All creation, from untamed animals to earthquakes, serves God's call for judgment. That's a good statement. Everything does God's bidding. We tend to think of just sort of His image-bearing creatures. But what we're being reminded of here in the words of Mark Dever is that everything is at God's disposal. Famine and plague do His bidding. We see that in chapter 6. We'll see that more and more as we move through Revelation. But as we do, we continually need to get anchored back into that scene of chapters 4 and 5 to recognize that this God is eminently worthy of doing what He purposes to do in this world, of judging sin in the way that He has determined to do it, of offering righteousness in just the way He has purposed and through the means that he has accomplished through the work of his son. Today we're going to see how that power and authority of God works for the well-being of his people. That's what chapter 7 gives us. Last Sunday's passage finished with a question from those who were living under the sixth seal. That seal that introduces the final great tribulation to follow. Those people hadn't embraced the joy of reconciliation with God through repentance and faith, and they were terrified. We saw in verse 16 of chapter 6, they were calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of Him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? That was the closing question of chapter 6. Their assumption, I'm sure, was that no one can stand. 
But then we're immediately introduced to two enormous groups of people in chapter 7 who seem to be standing just fine. In fact, they seem to be thriving. This is our text for today, chapter 7. And here we're told what makes the difference between these people in chapter 7 and those people at the end of chapter 6 who were calling out for the mountains to crush them that they might not face the wrath of the Lamb. Let's look at chapter 7 in its two clear halves. And you can see the outline there in your bulletin. There is the multitude on earth. Verses 1 through 8, and the great multitude in heaven, verses 9 through 17. Let's work through this text. Verse 1, after this I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, that no wind might blow on the earth or the sea or against any tree. Didn't want the leaves rustling. The four corners of the earth here, by the way, is a reference to is not a reference, I mean, to first century cosmology, as though the ancients or the writers of Scripture thought that the earth was flat and square. It's a figure of speech, and we should recognize that. And actually, we really do most often, don't we? We should note the fact that we do have some instincts for reading apocalyptic and prophetic literature. We, we have some instincts toward natural adjustments to the language of these two genres. When we read aloud works written in these genres, one of the blessings we receive is that we develop an ear for them. We understand figures of speech when they arise in the text, sort of like we do 20 minutes into an evening of Shakespeare. All of a sudden, you can hear it and understand because your ear tunes in. The same thing happens in reading apocalyptic and prophetic literature. So we encounter a figure of speech as chapter 7 opens. What's being referred to here is that these four angels, who are figuratively speaking, standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the winds, they've been given authority over all the winds that blow on the earth. They're protecting the earth. With all the judgments to follow, we know that the, the danger that the earth can face. So before the seventh seal is slit, these four angels appear protecting the earth for one more development before it happens. Each of the angels is on duty, and when they're on duty, not a breath of wind will blow awry on the earth. Also notice their description as the text continues in verse 2. These four angels had been given power to harm the earth and sea. Using the four winds, I'm sure, or anything else in all of creation, they had the power and the authority to harm the earth. Yet they could also withhold harm on demand, we see again in verse 3. And that's just what they're told to do by this additional angel who's ascending from the rising of the sun. Think about that. Sometimes we struggle to wonder, how is it that John couldn't tell the difference between an angel and the one seated on the throne, even late in this prophecy? 
He fell down to worship an angel messenger that came to him thinking it was God. Well, if an angel can ascend from the rising of the sun, what are the glory of these created beings that still aren't the ones seated on the throne? Drive east on Route 88 in the morning, and you know the brightness of the morning sun. That's what John sees to announce. Verse 3, do not harm the earth or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. You see that? Verse 3, do not harm the earth or sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. Isn't this interesting? Fully six and a half chapters before we're introduced to the mark of the beast in chapter 13, we're introduced to the mark of the lamb. The seal of the living God put on the foreheads of his people. But which do we hear more about? The seal of the living God or the mark of the beast? What do we hear more about? Rhetorical question. Thank you for receiving as such. We know the answer. We can forget that there is a seal of the living God. We can forget about the fact that it's rooted deeply in Old Testament teaching. We'll get to that in a few moments. This angel who has the seal of the living God ascends from the rising sun. It means he's coming from the east. That's the same direction from which the glory of the Lord entered and filled the temple in Ezekiel's vision. In chapter 43 in his prophecy. God is moving. And he's moving not just to mark his people here, not just to identify them, but he's authenticating them, he's validating them. These are mine. Not unlike the seven-sealed scroll. But even more important here in this context, even more important we'll see as the narrative of Re Revelation moves ahead, it's like the blood on the doorpost during the tenth plague in Egypt. It's protection. They're being marked. When that blood was over the doorpost, the judging angel of the Lord passed over. Here, likewise, it's protection. A couple of examples. Under the fifth trumpet, over in chapter 9, the judgment of locusts with the power of scorpions, we're told. We read this. They were told, these locusts, not to harm the grass of the earth or any green plant or any tree, but only those people who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. That's chapter 9, verse 4. And the first bold judgment that comes in chapter 16, verse 2, comes upon the people who bore the mark of the beast. It's a distinguishing mark. This is protection. Some belong to the Lord, some belong to His enemy. And those that received the 
seal of the living God know his protection. So let me ask you a question. Do you think anyone with the seal of God on his forehead needs to fear the mark of the beast in any way? Do you think anyone with the seal of God on his forehead needs to fear the mark of the beast in any way? I think that's a pretty important question to address. But we're going to get back to it a little bit later. We're going to let that question hang as we look through this text and then come back to it and see what we should do with that, how we should answer that question. Verse 4, And I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000, sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. And then the tribes are listed here. Judah, Reuben, Gad, Asher, Naphtali, Manasseh, Simeon, Levi, Issachar, Zebulun, Joseph, and Benjamin. This listing matches no other in Scripture. Nowhere else does this list of tribes appear. For instance, in Genesis 49, when Jacob was blessing his sons, he lists each of their names, including Joseph, as he should, all 12 of his sons. But when the tribes are listed in, for instance, Ezekiel 48, which is generally understood to be describing the millennium and even the eternal state, the prophet replaces Joseph with his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim, just as we would expect that he would do because that was part of the blessing of Joseph. The double blessing is that his two sons inherited an allotment of land. So they're considered part of the 12 tribes. And then the correction is made for the 12th because Levi is left off. Levi didn't receive an allotment of land. Levi and his tribe served as priests in Israel, and so they didn't get an allotment of land. They lived in and among and around the temple or the center of worship. So Levi is removed from that listing because it's all those who have a place in the land. That's the listing we'd expect to read here in Revelation 7. That was an end times vision as we read it in Ezekiel 40 to 48. But when the tribes are listed here in verses 4 through 8, that's not what we see. We see neither of these two listings. It's neither the sons of Jacob nor is it the tribes in Israel. That received land. Joseph is included here, you see, in verse 8. Levi is included here, you see, in verse 7. But Dan is omitted. Much speculation about why that might be. Nothing provable. What's interesting, though, is that Dan is omitted even though he's named first by Ezekiel. And Manasseh is listed here. But Ephraim isn't. Again, speculation, nothing persuasive. But with the listing of both Joseph and Manasseh, it seems like Manasseh's got a double blessing in the listing of Revelation 7. It's a strange listing. It's indeed a strange listing. 
and no one knows for certain why. Like I say, a lot of speculation, but all we can see here is that this one's different from any other. That's what first tips us off to the fact that something unusual is happening here. I can initially, or it can initially seem like the Jews on earth, and I would say uh, uh, it sounds like every one of them here, meaning an enormously large number that suggests apocalyptic completeness to the max, 144,000. Think of it, 12 squared times 10 cubed. This is a massive number of people using apocalyptic imagery to suggest completeness. So the Jews on earth, and seemingly every one of them, are being sealed by God. They are servants of the living God, we're told here, being sealed by God so that they won't be harmed, to borrow the language of chapter 6, as the sky vanishes like a scroll and every mountain and island is removed from its place. They're to be protected through this. How are we to understand this? That's an important question, too. Before we try to answer, though, let's look at the second multitude because that's going to be helpful, I believe. And that moves us into point two, the great multitude in heaven, verses 9 to 17. Look at verse 9. After this, I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every tri uh, nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, recalling God's promise to Abram, by the way, Genesis 12, saw some from every nation standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. Friends, these are the conquerors. These are the conquerors that were talked about at the end of each letter. This is the community of the redeemed, clothed in white robes, bearing the clear raiment of the redeemed, as we see that appear several times in this book. The palm branches, they're a symbol of victory. They're a symbol of deliverance and peace, shalom. Israel used palm branches to rejoice before the Lord at the Feast of Booths, Leviticus 23, verse 40, celebrating their deliverance from Egypt. It's a familiar scene. This is the people of God celebrating deliverance and worshiping and praising God for having brought it. And their particular celebration here, verse 10, was salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. It's wholly His work. This is the language of Jonah in the belly of the fish. This is, this is ascribing to God the glory that is due His name. Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, indistinguishable now from one another in terms of their worthiness of worship. Verse 11, and the all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne of God and worshiped, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Sevenfold worship again. Glorious God being praised by this innumerable omni-ethnic multitude in heaven. So who are these people? This innumerable multitude clothed in white. 
Who are they? Interestingly, that's the question that one of the elders asked John, not vice versa. But John turned it back to him. You can see that there in verse 14. I said to him, sir, you know. And he said to me, these are those coming out of the great tribulation. These are those coming out of the great tribulation. Isn't that interesting? How is it that we could say that the church doesn't go through the great tribulation when these are the ones coming out of it? Present tense. Ongoing action. Right now, here, they're coming out of the great tribulation. With the fifth seal as background, every insinuation is that they died in the great tribulation. Whether as straight-up martyrs, as seems most clear in chapter 6, but it's one of the reasons we said we're not confident these are actually just people who actually died because of their testimony, but that it's potentially a combination of those who died because of their testimony and of those who remained faithful even under persecution, even if the eventual cause of their death wasn't a direct result of that. Perhaps they died of natural causes, but they died enduring and pressing on in hope of the day of resurrection, even while facing the persecution of these days. So every insinuation is that they died in the great tribulation, whether as straight-up martyrs or as faithful Christians, as conquerors, who endured persecution without compromise until their death. So what we see is, this is the church that we're seeing in the second half of Revelation 7. The redeemed from every ethnicity in the whole world, clothed in white robes and worshiping around the throne of God. This is the redeemed community. But how does this group relate to the first group of verses 1 through 8? That's a huge question. At first blush, it could seem like this would confirm, the separation of these would confirm the view that says the church is in heaven at this point and the great tribulation into the millennium is for the Jews on earth. After all, aren't these two groups clearly distinguished from one another? The first is explicitly numbered while the second no one could number. The first seems to be on earth while the second seems to be in heaven. And the first is explicitly Jewish, while the second is omni-ethnic. Isn't John laboring to help us see these as differing groups? That's a tempting conclusion. But I don't think it fits the overall very well. Honestly, I think John is laboring to do just the opposite. When you get a fuller picture of what he's doing here. And of these two multitudes and how he tells about them, I think he's doing just the opposite of trying to show us that they're two different groups. I think he's trying to show us that they're one and the same. 
I think he's laboring to help us see them as the same group. They're the church. The first group is the church on the threshold of the great tribulation. Receiving the seal of God to pass through it and remain faithful to their Savior. The second is the church accumulating in heaven during the great tribulation along with the redeemed of all ages who are already present there. Please understand, this isn't what some want to call replacement theology. It's not that at all. Where the church replaces Israel as the people of God. It is nowhere near that simple, God's plan of salvation and how He makes one new man out of the two. In fact, again, I believe it's just the opposite of a replacement. It's the fulfillment of His purpose in salvation. This is not the church replacing Israel. This is Israel having come into the church, having trusted in Jesus as their promised Messiah, and therefore becoming one new man with believing Gentiles, thus making up the church. I believe John is showing us here that the full number of ethnic Jews, the elect among Israel, will become part of the redeemed community, the church, just as Scripture has promised that they will. Romans 11. The first clue he gives us that this is what he's doing is that odd listing of the 12 tribes. He's identifying a reconstituted people of God, a new listing of the people of God on earth already having believed. You see that as the chapter opens. These are servants of the living God. They've already believed. This isn't their salvation. So I want to make this group the Jews that are converted during the Great Tribulation. But here we are on the threshold of the Great Tribulation, and they're already servants of God, receiving His seal to endure during this time. It seems odd to think that these are Jews then who come to saving faith at that time, when what I believe we're seeing here is that they've already come to faith before the Great Tribulation. That's why they're being sealed. Before that harm comes to the earth, So they'll be protected when it does. These believing Jews stand in contrast to the synagogue of Satan mentioned twice in the seven letters. Chapter 2, verse 9. Chapter 3, verse 9. Those were unbelieving among ethnic Israel. These are believers who are now part of the church And surely, if they had already believed in Jesus before the church had been raptured, if that were the scene, they wouldn't have been left on the earth at that time. The church is one new man made up of Jew and Gentile alike with no dividing wall of hostility between them any longer. Jesus has broken that down in His body on the cross. And it is one people of God at this point, the church the redeemed from all nations, including the elect in Israel. So I believe this 
144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel is intended to show us all at once not only an image of the full community of the redeemed on earth, but is also spotlighting the fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham in Genesis 12 and 15 and 18 and later. I think we're being reminded here in the language of Romans 2 that no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. That means by saving belief, not by the law. I think we're being reminded here that God's plan to unite all things in Christ is being achieved. And in the language of Paul from Galatians, for as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. Not in Christ, not any longer. That doesn't take anything away from the Jews because it's the Messiah they've been looking for all along. That's where their promises are fulfilled. And they will be in the land for all eternity. And a complete number of them will be part of that redeemed community. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. All of you, Israel and the nations, are heirs according to promise. This description, the servants of God here in verse 3, is used three other times in Revelation, and each of those times it refers to the entire community of the redeemed. I believe it also does here. Also, Ezekiel 9 is clearly in John's mind as he finds words for what he's seeing here. I mentioned earlier that the seal of God is deeply rooted in Scripture. Well, Ezekiel 9 is one of the places, and I think that's clearly what John is drawing on as he talks about the seal of the living God here. And there, the mark that the Lord commanded to be put on the foreheads of the men who sigh and groan over all the abominations that are committed in Jerusalem during Ezekiel's day, they're distinguished between genuine believers and unbelievers in that day. That's what the seal did. You can read that text and see that. The clearest indication is that it does the same thing here. The seal of the living God distinguishes between the truly converted and the unconverted. And the converted are presented here as 12,000 from a unique listing of the tribes of Israel. One more thing. This is interesting. We've seen this pattern before. John says in verse 4, I heard. And then look down to verse 9. You can see on the other side of the listing, I looked. This is just what we saw in chapter 5. Where John heard about a lion and then he turned and saw a lamb. Here he heard about this 
multitude of 144,000, and he turns and looks and sees the omniethnic multitude in heaven. This is not an either-or, Jews or Gentiles, Jews or church. I think it's both and with the same structure. I think the same is true here as in chapter 5. All this said, I believe we're looking at the church in both halves of Revelation 7. They're promised protection at the start of a heavy season. They're sealed for it. Yet clearly this is promised protection of their faith, not of their bodies. For many of them will yield up their bodies. We see in verse 14 compared to verse 9 of chapter 6. True believers are sealed against the possibility of rejecting their Savior under any form of persecution. And they will eventually, by whatever means, join that great multitude in heaven. Whether by forfeiting their life as a martyr or their life coming to an end as a faithfully enduring believer, they will eventually join the great multitude that no one can number standing before the throne of God and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Verse 15, they will continue on then at that point, serving God. They're identified in verse 3 as the servants of God. They'll continue on in this scene, serving God day and night in His temple. And He who sits on the throne will shelter them with His presence. I think that's what the reference to His temple is talking about here. It's talking about His presence. Because we know there'll be no temple in the eternal city. Chapter 21, verse 22. Verse 16 here, they shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them anymore, nor any scorching heat. These are apocalyptic images of judgment. For the Lamb in the midst of the throne, I love that. Standing in the middle of the throne now, indistinguishable, the one seated on the throne and the Lamb. It's just merging together. This greatness of the glory of God is overwhelming, John. The Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. Wow, no fears, no lack, no unmet need. Shepherded by God Himself. Ezekiel 34. And he will guide them to springs of living water. Don't you wonder what living water tastes like? How refreshing is a glass of cold water on a hot day? I was a catcher back when I played baseball and I ate dust for seven innings. A glass of cold water at the end of the game was a really welcome refreshment. How much beyond that to sinners saved by grace will be the taste of living water from the very hand of the one seated on the throne and the Lamb? 
You look forward to that day? And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. This is not just an image of the church as it accumulates in heaven during the great tribulation. This takes us all the way through to the new heavens and the new earth. God's people will be safe in his presence until then. Which means that God's people will be safe in his presence until Forever. No lack, no need. Finished with the battle against sin and a sinful world numbered among the redeemed community. Just one last thing before we finish. What about our lingering question? Do you think anyone with the seal of God on their foreheads, needs to fear the mark of the beast in any way. With these closing three verses here in chapter 7, the answer is clearly no. But you know what? We're given additional testimony to this fact as we move ahead in the book of Revelation. So let's look ahead for just a moment as we finish today. I don't think it's stealing any thunder from later down the road, and pardon the pun, thunder isn't an apocalyptic image there, it's just a figure of speech. (laughs) I don't think it'll steal any thunder from down the road if we notice this now. These 144,000 saints are sealed here in chapter 7. Then, as we'll see, literally all hell breaks loose in chapters 8 through 13. But in chapter 14, we come back to these 144,000 again. You know how many are missing? Not one. Not one. Every single one of this 144,000 remains standing before the throne with the Lamb. It appears they're in heaven at this point. And now it's not their ethnicity that's being spotlighted, but their purity, their obedience, their faithfulness. And the text says, I love this in verse 4, they follow the Lamb wherever He goes. What else would you do in heaven? Why would you go elsewhere from the presence of the Lamb? But you know what? It doesn't matter whether they're on earth or in heaven. Because this wasn't a promise of physical protection from the beginning. This is a promise that none will be lost. No one will be able to pluck them out of my Father's hands. All of them are there. Everyone accounted for. No 99 here and one there. 144,000, the full, complete number, fully delivered. So what's our takeaway today? Literally three quick sentences. God's people will be preserved until they're in His presence. Second, God's people will be shepherded by Him now and forever 
third, God's people will worship Him in time and eternity. Friends, we can count on all of this. We can count on all of this because we've already been sealed, Ephesians 1, verse 13, with the promised Holy Spirit. Verse 14, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. Already been sealed. To the praise of God's glory, Paul finishes there. The seal of the living God securing His people and protecting them for full deliverance into His presence for all eternity. That's an encouraging word to read here at this stage in the book of Revelation. Wouldn't you agree? Amen. Amen. Let's pray together. And as we pray, the musicians and the servers of communion can join us at the front. Heavenly Father, there is much to dispute in the passage that we have worked through today. There's much on which your people could dialogue and debate and even disagree. But Father, on the whole of what we have said today, these truths are rooted in your word and are reliable reassurances that are put right before our eyes from this text, even if we have slightly varied interpretations of how to handle it. Father, help us to look past the limitations of our own flesh in this matter and drink in the reassurance and confidence and comfort and promise, undeniable promise, that is communicated to us in this chapter of your word. Help us, Lord God, to rejoice that you have made us alive in Christ, that we can say with the innumerable multitude in heaven, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. We can rejoice with them already in that salvation that is ours. And in the promise that comes that you will strengthen us to endure whatever you call us to face in our day. And you will enable us to endure to the point where we can say with the Apostle Paul, these light and momentary afflictions aren't worth comparing to the glory that is revealed to us. Father, help us know that truth. Help us to know that truth by experience in our day. Once again, to the praise of your glory, and in Jesus' name we pray, amen.